but a very good morning to you and uh, hello to our friends listening on the podcast, whatever time of day it is you're listening to this. So let's do our usual thing of just keeping silence uh, for a few moments. And here are some words from Jane Williams' book, The Art of Advent, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for 2018. John the Baptist is an obvious candidate for a candle in the Advent wreath, reminding us of God's preparation for the birth of Jesus. He is introduced in Mark's Gospel with the words from Isaiah about a messenger who is sent to prepare the way, and he himself speaks of the one who is coming after me. As Advent is a time of preparation for the birth of Jesus, there could be no better guide than John the Baptist. Blessed are you, Sovereign Lord, just and true. To you be praise and glory for ever. Your prophet, John the Baptist, was witness to the truth as a burning and shining light. May we, your servants, rejoice in his light, and so be led to witness to him who is the Lord of our coming kingdom, Jesus our Saviour and King of the ages. Amen. So in the week one we were remembering, we're remembering all the way through uh, this series, and the main thing that I want us to remember is that we're in relationship with God. That's the key thing. From the very beginning, we are in relationship with God, and he is in relationship with us. And it is a relationship of love. And like all relationships, they have their ups and they have their downs. And the only good relationship is one that is tried in the fire. So you live in a perfect relationship with nothing that troubles the waters. You're living, in a sense, in one dimension. And a true relationship encompasses everything, both the bad and the good things. So we looked at Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac as they grappled with their two tests, the one simple one, which went wrong for Adam and Eve, and the one much harder one, which went right for Abraham. And last week we started uh, to look at the the huge body of work from the prophets. Um, We talked about how they tell it how it is, how they foretell, criticising, pointing out what's going wrong, and how they foretell how they give us clues about what is uh, going to happen in the future. But crucially, they also tell us that the Lord is to be feared and that the Lord is a Lord of love and in relationship, and that we are still the recipients of this love if we repent and return to God. So today we've got to John the Baptist, and this is quite nice for me because we're on a single person rather than a great, um, great large body of people. Uh, And he's interesting because we have a lot of information about him. Uh, We have things that he says about himself. We have things that other people say about him. Uh, And he turns up right at the start of the gospel story. Uh, But what I want to do is to look at John's life and what we know about him, which I break down into four elements. His birth, um, his ministry, what other people were saying about him, and, and what he himself says about himself. Um, the baptism of Christ, 
And the fourth bit is his death. Now, I'm not going to deal with his death particularly today because I, I don't think it's, um, it needs to stand at the centre of what we're doing in Advent. But just so you know, because I'm not going to refer to it again, he dies, he's beheaded. Um, Herod uh, offers his, um, his relative, I'm trying to think what she is now, she's probably his daughter-in-law, isn't she? Yes. It gets very complicated because of all the marriage. Um, uh, Salome, he says, if you dance me, I'll give you anything you want. And um, Salome's mother, who is particularly angry with John the Baptist, says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Salome dances, Herod can't refuse, and so John is executed. So just in case anyone doesn't know where we are, that's how he dies. But that's not what I want to deal with today. Before we get to these things about John, I thought it would be worth looking at what's going on before he turns up on the scene. And a bit like us now in Advent, the Jewish people are in a state of anticipation. They're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and for their redemption. And you may, if you want an example of someone who's absolutely geared up for this, that would, I would suggest would be the priest Simeon, who works in the temple at Jerusalem. He's uh, the priest who's received a message from God that he will not die until he has seen the Christ of the Lord. And when Mary and Joseph come to dedicate their firstborn at the temple, Simeon recognises the, the baby, the young child, as, uh, as Christ, and then utters the words which we know as the Nuncdomitus, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. So he recognises Jesus and can thus die um, knowing that the Messiah has come. Now, um, for Jewish people and their Passover celebrations, at the, the, the centre of what they do is a retelling of the story of salvation. That's essentially what we're doing in this course, and indeed, arguably, throughout Advent every year. We're retelling our salvation. That's the story of creation, the story of the flood, the story of the patriarchs. Um, but the real centrepiece for them is the retelling of the story of Exodus, how they, as an oppressed and enslaved people in Egypt, are liberated from Pharaoh delivered through the waters of the Red Sea and brought into the land of Canaan, given their, their inheritance, their, um, receiving their, what they've been promised. And as part of this remembrance that they do, there is a strong emphasis that they are God's chosen people in relationship with God. And they're called not only to exist in a vacuum, but to be a shining beacon to the surrounding nations through faith and devotion to the one true God. If you remember back to Abraham, he's the first one who comes along and says, there's only one God. We don't want all these little statue gods. But of course, the history of the Jewish people is not one of perfection. Going to Canaan, living a fabulous life, everything being sorted out. They suffer injustice, oppression. They're overcome by neighbouring nations, violent emperors, monarchs and their various armies. And the story of Israel up to, and indeed during the time of Jesus, is one of exile and oppression. So at the time of uh, the birth of Jesus, of course, they are uh, a, a, a vassal um, state of the Roman Empire. What they're looking for is a new exodus, led by a new Messiah, a new Moses, if you like, who will take them away from this and give them something better. So they're waiting. They're waiting for deliverance. There are several passages within the Old Testament which suggest that before the Messiah comes, a great prophet will arise. And the prophet Malachi is the person who um, seems to encapsulate this most clearly. He says in his chapter 3, verse 1, 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And a little later, in chapter 4, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. There's a promise there. This is going to happen. Something's, you know, somebody's going to come along. He's going to change everything. And then something rather bad is going to happen. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. If we don't turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to their fathers. Of course, there's been no shortage of prophets, as we discovered last week. And there were many that I didn't have time to touch on. Um, some would even head out to the desert, be Eremites, living and praying in the desert, existing in a space where they can commune with God, where they can be, if you like, obsessed with God, to be taken away entirely from the distractions of the world. And of course, thinking of the desert makes us think of the prophet Isaiah. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. That's Isaiah 40. So this talks about someone outside of society proclaiming in the wilderness. And so it comes, as it were, from outside into the centre of society. And it involves society going to the person who's going to say this stuff. It's a change. It's not the temple. It's not the priests. It's an outsider. Now, into this waiting world came the birth of a boy called John, who turns into an unconventional man, who is set apart from society by his clothes, by his diet and his living arrangements. True to the tradition of the prophets, he certainly forth tells, he makes it clear beyond doubt when people are in error, and he foretells, he says, somebody's coming after me. But let's go right back to the beginning of this story and have a look at the Gospel of St. Luke, which has a very full account of his conception and birth. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm going to assume you know some bits of it. So it starts, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children. So the scene is set. You're sort of set up here for a miracle, aren't you? You've been given some information and you know that things are going to change. Two righteous people, advanced in years, no children. So an angel appears to Zechariah when he's in the temple. And the angel Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power, with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah is one of those people who's waiting. He's playing the waiting game for the Messiah. Where is he? When's he coming? What's he going to do? Where is Elijah? That's the sign they're looking for, because it isn't immediately obvious to them that they're going to recognize the Messiah, but they should recognize Elijah. So when the angel says these words to Zechariah, it's highly likely he knows what they're talking about. The business about not drinking wine, of course, is a sign of a priestly vocation, to be kept separate. And this is when I was talking about the idea that he's from outside society. He's not involved in day-to-day life. He's not, certainly not, I wouldn't say he's a drunkard, you know, I wouldn't say anyone's necessarily a drunkard, but he's not doing the things that would be regarded as commonplace. Don't forget, wine in many ways is much more healthy for you in this period than water, because it's, it's more safe to drink. Um, the, the water isn't always safe to drink, so it's not unreasonable to drink wine. Um, but he's not going to do that. He's going to be kept clean, as clean as he can be, for the job that he's got to do. The angel Gabriel makes it clear here that he has Elijah's spirit and power, which is why I read it twice. It's not the gospeler who's, um, who's done that. Um, and that he's got a very hard job to do, turning the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because in the prophecy, it says the hearts of parents to children and children to parents. That's understandable. Here, he says, turning the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. You'd expect it to be children coming back to parents. Children are the ones who go get it wrong, and the parents say, no, no, don't do that. That's not good for you, or that's not right. This is how you do it. That's not what this says. So it suggests in some ways, I think, that the parents, us lot, the older lot, we've sort of gone off course a bit, and that we have to look to these children, maybe John and Jesus, if you're going to be literal, but to the innocence of children, uh, in order to get to find our way back uh, to where we're going, I want to. The first piece we're going to listen to is um, a piece by the Spanish Renaissance composer. It's the first piece on your handout. If you're listening on the podcast, by the way, and you'd like a copy of the handout, do get in touch. I think you'll find the details where you from wherever you've downloaded this podcast. Uh, but I can give you the email, which is adult learning, all one word at St. Paul's Cathedral, that's a little st, stpaulscathedral.org.uk. This first piece, Descendit Angelus Domini. This is a depiction of the angel of the Lord coming to Zechariah and announcing the birth of John the Baptist. Now, Renaissance music can be slightly hard to talk about because it's very democratic. Um, Every part is equally important. It isn't like... Certainly the cathedral music of the later ages, where you tend to have a dominant top line and other parts um, supporting them. Um, And you don't also, you don't tend to get quite so many um, easily appreciable, uh, um, 
uh, easy gestures that can be appreciated. Um, but I'd suggest when you listen to this, notice that the angel starts a bit high and comes down, because angels in this period come from heaven down to earth. Um, and notice the swirl. There's a lot of swirl in the music going on, which could be angels' wings. It's energy, certainly. It's an energy that Zachariah is confronted with. And you should also notice that um, 16th century music is based on imitation. One part does something, another part copies it. But when they want to get a message out very clearly, then they make all the words happen at the same time in the same rhythm. And that's exactly what Victoria does. So Victoria is a, a priest, actually, priest composer, oratorian priest, um, originally from Spain, spends most of his working life in Rome, uh, but ends his life back in Spain. And this is a small group called the Cardinals Music Singing It. So back to the story. I'm just praising now. I'm not uh, reading this whole thing out. The things we need to notice um, in, uh, in the birth story um, is that uh, Elizabeth and Mary meet. Mary's also had an annunciation from an angel announcing the birth of Jesus. And uh, they meet uh, together. And Elizabeth's, the child in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy uh, when the two become physically close. I had that um, effect on a child once, when I was singing Negra Sum from Monteverdi Vespers. It's the only time it's ever happened. I think I nearly caused somebody to go into labour, but I'm not sure if it was good or not. But this is not, this is not the use of a voice, this is not the use of any magic trips, this is just physical proximity. So in the same way that Simeon is going to recognise Jesus by seeing him, as the, him recognising him as the Messiah, there is some connection already here. Um, and of course, uh, the one of the one of the greatest texts for me in the Bible is the words that Zechariah utters when he gets his speech back. If you remember, he he doesn't believe the angel um, who pronounce, who announces the birth of John, um, and uh, he's struck dumb. And when the child is born, and Zechariah confirms that he should be called. John, he utters the words of the Benedictus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And as part of that, he says, and you, child, this is referring to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. I think it's the most beautiful phrase. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's an amazing promise there. Absolutely amazing. And that section finishes off with a little tag. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Because outside society. So it's the outsider coming in. So I'm going to move to another piece of music immediately now, which is on your second page, just for, for reasons of clarity and space. It's the Benedictus by Elgar on page two. Um, it's another piece of which I'm very fond. The Benedictus is now part of our Matins cycle. It's one of the canticles that can be used during Matins and is usually used during the season of Advent and Lent. And this is a setting by Edward Elgar, so this is the latest piece of music you're going to hear this week. It's not, um, we've got no scary modern music for you this week, don't worry. Um, Elgar is a symphonic composer, 
Um, not just in the sense that he writes two, two and a half symphonies. He, he doesn't quite finish his third one. Um, but because I think he thinks in a symphonic sense, when, unless he's writing his very early small um, choral pieces. It's large scale, large canvas, big gestures. Uh, and I'm interested in this setting because what I think Elgar has captured brilliantly is the start, is a new dawn. It feels like a new day breaking to me in the, in the music at the start. It's gentle, it's full of promise. It's also quite modest, I think, and therefore I feel full of an inner confidence. The Gloria at the end is a much bigger statement, and that's partly because the Benedictus is... Uh, Elgar also writes a Te Deum, so it's a Te Deum and Benedictus. So Elgar is unifying the two pieces by using the same material for the Gloria. But also I think it's a brilliant response. It's our response to this promise which we've been given. Uh, here is the choir of St John's College, Cambridge, under Christopher Robinson. So I don't know if there's anything they want to say about that. I just uh, The things that occur to me are mainly text-based, actually. The reason I wanted to play this was so you could hear the text. But we've got our promise here, of course, the covenant, the relationship, to perform the mercy of promise to our forefathers, to perform the oath which he swore to our forefather Abraham. So it's stretching back into that tradition. But just look at that line which is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all that hate us. That's, that's the problem the Jewish people have. They know they've got a relationship with God and they know that he's promised that it's going to be all right and it isn't all right. So that's, that's rather how they, um, they perceive it. And this is why in Jesus' ministry, much later on, of course, there is a, there's a problem with people who say, well, Jesus isn't what we want. He's not. How is he going to overthrow the Roman Empire by doing what he's doing? Uh, they're expecting something slightly different. But I do think it's the most beautiful text. Really, I'd have it sung every day if I had my... Yes, madam. But Luke is writing from, from the New Covenant. So why are you telling it so beautifully? Well, I think, I mean, there's a question there about um, the fact that Luke is writing from the New Covenant and why, why is he being so truthful about it. I mean, I think Luke is often concerned with giving us lots of evidence and lots of detail. Um, and I think this is, I think Zachariah is, is, is a Jewish priest of the temple, and this is this is what he's this is what he's expecting, um, and I think that's that's exactly where they are. And of course, this is part of the revolution of Jesus that it isn't about raising an army and marching on Rome. It, everything is going to be turned upside down because Jesus isn't going to be the Messiah that that, that a lot of people expect. So I, I think it's I think it's just it's it's of its I think it's correct and of its time. I would say it's very accurate. Um, but the promise, I mean, there's all, there's all the promise here, to give knowledge of salvation. That, again, is what they want. They want salvation for the remission of their sins. All the promises there. Um, and, and, of course, this constant theme that you get through prophecy, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And what I love is that it's everyone. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not restricted to the Jewish people, it's for everyone. But I think it's, I think it's accurate. And I think Luke often wants us, to, wants us to feel confident that he's being accurate, which is why he gives us so much detail about the, the birth of Jesus, for example. We get almost more detail from him than for anyone else. So I think that's, I think that's what it is. So let's look, let's look at what... <coughs> people say about John and what he says about himself. Uh, and when I say people, I mean the, the people on the ground at the time, but also the Gospelers. John 1, Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, 
right at the beginning. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. So the gospeler, John, is very clearly identifying John the Baptist here with the great prophet who is to come. So it's a little bit for me, as an amateur gardener, it's a bit like a garden that's overgrown. John is coming to get us ready. The ground has to be prepared. We've got to be ready to receive uh, God. Because if you're, if you're planting or you know, seeds or plants, if the ground isn't prepared, the chance it won't take. And we will remember the parable of, um, of the seeds being thrown on ground and, and falling on, on stony ground. We're such a ground, rather perhaps overgrown, full of weeds, not sufficiently tended. Uh, but John the Baptist is not the gardener. He's not going to do it for us. So he'll stand there and he'll point his finger upwards and he'll tell you to repent. But we have to do it. Repentance has to be inward. And when we come on to baptism, we're going to look at that a little bit more. In St. Matthew's Gospel, it's Jesus who tells us exactly where John sits in the general scheme of things. In, in chapter 11, verse 10... It's, it's unequivocal here. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. Preparing. Maybe that's what... So in Advent, you know, just think of yourself as an untended garden. When you look out the window and look at your garden and think, Oh, Lord, I really need to clean these leaves up. and There are weeds everywhere. Get out there and do it. But do it in here. Do it in the heart. Okay. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Yet, semicolon in this translation, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So it's this upside downness again. Everything's upside down, it's topsy-turvy. Nothing is how you expect it to be. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He goes on to say in verse 13, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. There's an interesting line there, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And just before we consider that line, I want to mention one other gospel passage, which is also in St. Matthew 17, 10 to 13. This is the transfiguration scene. And after the transfiguration has happened, it says, The disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? It's a very good question. Very good question to ask. He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't actually answer the question, does he? Why do the scribes say Elijah must come? The answer should be, well, Elijah's got to come so that this can happen and that can happen. He doesn't say that. He uses a diversion by saying, well, he's already here. Don't worry about why he's got to come. It's happening. It's here and now. He's he's the forerunner that everyone is waiting for. Now, my question, I think, at this point um, is to say, is John Elijah? I think that's the the thing we need to ask. Um, Because a little bit later on, John is going to deny he's Elijah. 
I'm just going to save that bit for you for a minute, but you, I think you all know the story. John is going to they say, are you the prophet Elijah? He goes, no, I'm not. I'm not. So I think we need to ask ourselves, if Jesus is saying he is, why is he saying he isn't? Well, if you, if you work through it all, let's look at all the options. I think the first option is John didn't realise he was Elijah. Let's assume he is, and John didn't realise it. Well, I think that's unlikely, because we know from Luke that Zechariah has been told all about it, and Zechariah knows what he's doing, I suggest. And I'm presuming he's passed it on. He's living in the wilderness, he's wearing funny clothes, and he's eating strange food. I think he's got the message that he's different. I think John's mode of living, living suggests that he has consecrated his life to God. There's another reason, which is that he isn't Elijah. Maybe he isn't Elijah. He's just a very naughty man. No, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of uh, um, Monty Python. Um, well, this would mean that the evidence that we have, and let's think, you know, everything that's historical and literary is based on evidence. We have to say, what is the evidence for this? How do we, how do, how do we assess it? The evidence we have, which is that people are asking him, are you Elijah? Obviously, they're thinking about it. And what Jesus has said, as we've discovered, is very clear about it. Uh, that would suggest that they're wrong, which I don't think is right. I don't think they're wrong. I don't see why they should be. But I think the point is that some people have suggested that the, Jew the Jewish people were waiting for a reincarnation of Elijah, bodily. So don't forget, he's, he's bodily assumed into heaven. He doesn't suffer the death um, of, through the decay of the body. So just as he's gone up, I think there is a suggestion that he could come down looking the same, doing, doing the same sort of thing. Um, and there's, there's, there's quite a lot of traditions in the Jewish writings about this. But as we've already heard uh, in Luke's Gospel, John is filled with the spirit of Elijah, and I think that's the crucial thing. Um, also remember, it's the prophet Elisha who, when Elijah is bodily taken up into heaven, says, let me have a double portion of your spirit, and this is granted to him. So it's Elijah's spirit, I think, that has been passing on to John. The Gospel of St. John says, uh, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. Now, Elijah produces quite a lot of signs, including probably the greatest trick of all, of producing fire from heaven on command with, with a very few words. I mean, he's, you know, he can do it. John doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do signs. And that's, remember I think I said last week, one of the big things about the prophet is if you do signs, they've got to happen. And if you foretell, it's got to come true. Otherwise, you're a false prophet. So he doesn't do signs. That's not what he is. So he can't really be exactly Elijah. But I would suggest he's got the spirit of Elijah about him. I think there's one other thing. This is my interpretation. It's not, you know, I wouldn't set much store by it. But it is just possible that if John says, yes, I'm Elijah, it's a fair cop, you've got me, I am Elijah, it would completely derail his ministry. Because the expectations of which we were talking about what this person is and what salvation is could then have become derailed. So it's, we now look at the passage when um, John is asked. Um, he doesn't quote anything about Elijah. He goes to Isaiah. So here's John um, chapter 1, uh, verse 19. It says, This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the, I'm not the big one who's coming. And they asked him, 
What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's deflecting. I'm not Elijah, but I am prepared to associate myself with Isaiah. So there's the, the, you know, he's, he's admitting what his role is very clearly. Very, very clearly. Just before we listen to our next piece, which is a setting of those words um, that I've just read, I think it's also worth just making sure we know what John is saying. So here's Matthew, chapter 3. The first thing he says here is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's his big thing. You've got to change. You have to change what you're doing. And this is an Advent message for us. We all need to do it. There's no one in this room. There's no one listening to the podcast. There's no one in the world. You know, even our best politicians need to change. The kingdom of heaven has come near physically for them in the birth of Jesus through us, for us all the time because Christ has changed the game Christ's death and resurrection has changed the game we're mortal, we will die the kingdom of heaven is near unlike a garden which is a bit overgrown we need to be prepared for it then he again refers to the words of Isaiah this is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke the voice of one crying out in the wilderness then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so this is a big, big thing. Baptism does sort of figure in the Jewish rites as a purification, um, as a purification um, uh, sign uh, and process. Uh, but John, remember, has gone into the wilderness. He sort of comes out to the edge of the wilderness. He draws people to him, and they, he says, repent, and then he baptises them. He does a lot of this, and he becomes very popular. I think because people are waiting, because they're in that sense of anticipation and expectation. Now, I love this next bit. So there he is baptising. And then it says, But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. It's not very nice, is it? So you go along, you go along to a church, let's say you know, Westminster Abbey, and you go through the door... <laughs> And you say to the dean, Hannah, Mr. Dean, I, I wonder if I could have a baptism. And he turns around and says, you, I'm not having you in here, you awful people. It's not what you expect, is it? Obviously not from the dean of Westminster, he would never do that. But um, <laughs> it's quite a shock. It's quite a shock. It says, he carries on to say, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who's told you? Who's told you? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So it's not enough for us to sit here and say we are in relationship with God and we are saved. We can't be complacent. We can't say it's okay because we are chosen of God. It's constant work. It's constant work of preparation and sanctifying ourselves. Even now, he goes on to say, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's pretty serious stuff, this. And it isn't saying, you know, if you don't change, if you don't change, it could be a bit difficult. The axe is at the foot of the tree. They're all to be judged. And we've heard from the prophecies last week, he is like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire is very hot to purify, to purify metal. It's very, very hot. That's what we're going to go through. And then crucially, I baptise you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Anyone afraid yet? You should be a bit afraid, I think. I find that quite scary. And I'm here reminded of Ezekiel last week and the vision of aeroplanes. Coming face to face with God. That onslaught of sound that you had, which Vaughan Williams captured so well, which was actually hard, physically hard to listen to, pinned back against a wall. That's probably the nicer side of what might be coming along. So it's, it's time to change. Now, as I said, I want to spend most of the time on um, this Bach cantata, but before we do that, I have to play you one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written, which is Orlando Gibbon's setting of This is the Record of John, and this is the other piece which is on your page one of your handout. Uh, This is what's called a verse anthem, and a verse anthem is simply an anthem which has solos. A verse is the 16th century term for a solo either for an individual or a group of individuals. In this case, it's for an alto voice, which always sounds particularly plangent, and it's made more plangent because it's accompanied by a group of viols. These are the instruments which come before the violin family. They have a softer, um, softer tone. They use a different bow stroke, so they, um, it's, you'll hear uh, just how beautiful it is. Um, the aesthetic of this music is really chamber music, so you should think string quartets, string quintets. Okay, it's about interplay between the voices and the instruments. And it's a sort of solo and refrain, so the soloist says it, and then the chorus repeats it, and that happens three times. And if you want me to overinterpret this, which I'm slightly loath to do, but I mean just you know, things that I notice, I would say that when you hear the soloist say the words, I am not the Christ... He does a little, very, very fast, I am not the Christ, very fast notes. It's the only time we have fast notes. I think it's dismissive. I can't, you know, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that I could be the Christ. When he says, when he answers no, and they say, are you the prophet? And he answers no. Gibbons takes him down to the lowest, one of the lowest notes in his voice. It's very definite. And the bit that I love, and it's a tiny gesture, but when he sings the words that crieth in the wilderness, he uses the highest note the soloist sings for the crying in the wilderness. Um, And then that same note is repeated on make straight the way of the Lord. So they're very tiny gestures, but it's really just the beautiful aesthetic of the music and the clarity of the text. This is also the choir of St John's College, Cambridge, but under the person who was in charge of them before Christopher Robinson, and that's George Guest. I don't think Orlando Gibbons ever wrote a bad piece of music. He goes into my... There are three composers I don't think he wrote about a piece of music. Shall I tell you who they are? You might disagree. Orlando Gibbons. 
Maurice Ravel and Gustav Mahler, for me, are the three. But that's another, that's another course in another department, I expect. <coughs> so I'm coming now to the baptism. Jesus' baptism at the hands of John. Um, and this Mark Cantata. Uh, this crops up in two Gospels, in St. Mark and St. Matthew. And I'm looking at St. Matthew's uh, Gospel at the moment and reading to you from that, just so we're on the same page. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfil all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptised, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So there's a number of things going on in this passage. Um, first of all, I think it's entirely typical of John that he feels unqualified to baptise Jesus. He's already recognised Jesus once in the womb, when they were both in the womb, separate wombs, obviously. Um, and he's recognising him here again now doesn't stop him a little later on in the gospel narrative sending a message to Jesus saying are you are you actually the Messiah are you the one we're all waiting for so it's he does double check but here he seems to have no doubt it's very typical as I said I would suggest of John's view of himself he's modest he's modest and he's doing a particular job uh, some people get very tied up with why Jesus needed to be baptised. And you know, this is just like a sort of medieval type argument. Jesus is perfect, so why does he need to be baptised to have his sins washed away? Um, I think there's all sorts of stuff as going on here. Jesus is allowing himself to be seen in a public place. He's presenting himself to the crowds of people who are following John. Um, the appearance of the dove announces his status and his appearance uh, at, this, um, at the River Jordan announces the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry on earth. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of um, press release stuff going on here. But by Jesus being there, he endorses John's baptism and what John is doing and the important role that he's got. Don't forget, Jesus doesn't have any followers yet. So it's not, it's not that they're joining two groups of followers together. Uh, but Jesus comes along, John recognises him, and by John baptising Jesus, Jesus is enabling him to carry on and, and hopefully other people to follow him. The final thing I feel about this little passage um, is that it's important to remember, to, to use a, a phrase of a previous Bishop of Durham, John's baptism is not a conjuring trick. It's not as simple as saying, let's duck you in the River Jordan, oh, and all your sins have gone away, look, they're all gone. That's an outward sign of an inward change. The first thing John asks us to do is to repent. He doesn't say, come and be baptised. Oh, and you, know, you, have, you, have, you, have, you have repented, haven't you? You have to repent, you have to change inwardly, and you have to want it. And then the baptism is a sign of that, the washing of water, the cleaning of the body and the soul. It's a sign of what's happening inside. But a bit like confession... I mean, regardless of, of what you think of the idea of confession, um, if you go to confession and you say, I'm terribly sorry I've done this, and the priest says various things to you, 
if you go and do those things, go and, go and say um, the Our Father five times, or whatever, you know, whatever they might say in, in, our, in the Roman church, if you go and do that and you don't mean it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Because God is not mocked. God knows if the inward change is not real. So you can go to confession as often as you want, and you can be told to do many things, but if it's not a change, if you don't believe it, then it's not going to work. And the same is true with baptism. And that is why, of course, we have godparents for infant baptism, because the infants are not able to take that step. The idea is the godparents keep an eye on them, keep them on the straight and narrow, and help with their development. So it's so it, it isn't necessarily that Jesus has sins, you know, if, if that's something that preoccupies you. It's not something that, that's not necessarily that Jesus needs to have his sins forgiven, uh, but that uh, it's an, an outward sign. It also means Jesus is on the same side as us. He's immortal. He's human. Okay, and there's another big workshop there, on the, the on the, which we won't go into today. Elizabeth's waving at me. Um, we won't go into today. But Jesus is putting himself on our side. He's doing what we're doing. He's going to baptize. He's been going to be baptized. Now, this part cantata to which I keep referring, I'm going to listen to this in some chunks. I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get through it all. I'm going to listen to the first two movements together, first of all. So you have a chorus. I should say, um, Johann Sebastian Bach needs very little introduction. The, the preeminent composer of the Baroque period, brilliant mind, um, brilliant theologian, brilliant musician, somebody who unites all the different strands of Italy, France and Germany into a great musical whole. He wrote a huge number of cantatas for the Sundays of the year and the feast days. And the one we're going to listen to here, Christ unser Herr zum Jordan kam, um, Christ our Lord came to the Jordan, is one of the cantatas for the baptism of the Lord. Just have a look at this text. Um, the first verse and the last movement that you've got, one and seven, are texts by Martin Luther. But the whole work is imbued with the Protestant attitudes to various things, which we'll try and pick up on. The first chorus uh, is a grand chorus, and we'll, I'll try and leave some time to talk about it, because so, I know you've not had much input yet. But let's just take these words. In Christ our Lord came to the Jordan in accordance with his Father's will, received baptism from St. John to fulfil his work and ministry. That sort of lays out some of the things I'm saying. By this, I love this phrase that's coming up, by this he wanted to establish for us a bath. Da wollt er stiften uns ein Bad. He wanted to establish for us a bath to wash us from our sins and also to drown bitter death through his own blood and wounds. This meant a new life. Okay, so John's baptism in water is washing away our sins. Jesus rebaptizes us with his blood in a bath. Bath, to put this in the 16th century, have a bath is a great luxury. It's a great luxury to have a bath. And it's going to be filled, not just with the idea of some form of transformative water, but with Jesus' blood. That's a lot of blood. It's all of it. He's going to die. It's all there for us. This meant a new life. We have to have a new life to accept this. And that the base aria, which comes afterwards, mark and hear, children of mankind, what God himself calls baptism. There must indeed be water here, but not only mere water. God's word and God's spirit baptises and purifies sinners. Inward, inside, inside. Okay, here are those first two movements. 
which I, I sort of should, should have said that that was um, uh, John Elliott Gardner and the Monteverdi Choir and the English Baroque Soloists as part of their uh, millennium project to record the complete Bach cantatas. Any thoughts? Any thoughts about that? Do you like it? Yes, madam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so somebody's saying they were surprised at how much music there was in between the chorus lines in the first movement. Does anyone know what style Bach is writing in, in this first movement? There's no reason why you should, but just in case anyone knows. It's called the French Overture style. The French Overture style is very dotted. So it goes, bam, ba-beam, ba-dum, ba-beam. And it's uh, particularly grand. So I think, I think what Bach's doing here is announcing the arrival of a king. So when, when Baroque people heard this music, they would think, oh, somebody very grand has just walked into the room. It's, it was the French, it's called French Overture because the French were particularly fond of this style. So I think all the way through this, he is reinforcing that. And it's not uncommon. This is a sort of fantasy, a fantasia on the chorale tune. So it's hard to hear, but the tune is in the tenor part. He's, Bach is using a pre-existing tune and everything else around it makes it bigger, grander. John Elliott Gardner himself also thinks it reflects the waves of the River Jordan, the movement of the River Jordan, the sort of on, ongoing thing about it. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you got that. Yes, somebody's just saying, how many times do you have to mark and hear? What's he doing? Dietrich Henschel singing there. He's being a schoolmaster, don't you think? Merkt und hört ihr Menschenkinder. Listen, listen and pay attention. No, 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 li- no, listen. <laughs> yeah. Exactly so. It's treated, we are becoming children. Okay, we're becoming children and we're we are being taught exactly what to do. He's, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. Uh, he's also, Bach, he's not using any other instruments apart from the continuo, the sustaining instruments. So the cello, the organ, um, uh, which makes it, makes it very clear. It's rather didactic. I'm, t- I'm teaching you a lesson here and nothing needs to get in the way. And you need to pay attention. No, you really need to pay attention. I know that feeling. I've had to say that quite a lot. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to move through movements three and four um, by just telling you that it deals with the... You must listen to them, they're beautiful. But it deals with the baptism of Christ and the appearance of the dove because I want you to listen to the last three movements. Um, a restative... Now, you remember, I've been mentioning this for the last few weeks, on the whole, restatives are used to tell you about action. He did this, she did that. Um, this doesn't, this, is a, this isn't, doesn't quite do that, it's, uh, but it's an, an efficient um, communication. As Jesus thereafter his suffering and after his resurrection from this world is about to go to his father, he said to his disciples, go out to all the world and teach all the Gentiles, whoever believes and is baptized on earth will be justified and blessed. Please remember what I said, it's not about the sign, it's not about just having the water thrown on you, it's the inward change. Okay, but as humans, we need the outward sign. We need the outward sign as affirmation so that we feel, you know, feel, it's like going to Weight Watchers, you know, and being told you've lost two pounds. It's, it makes you feel good. It makes you want to do more. I'm speaking from experience here. Um, it makes you want to do more. The outward sign is something which reinforces us and helps us to go on. Then there's this outer aria. People believe then this mercy so that you do not die in your sins, so this is commenting on the recit we've just heard, nor perish in the pit of hell. Now, here's your big, big Protestant stuff here. Human deeds and holiness never count for anything before God. Okay, that's, that's pretty hardcore Protestantism there. 
Um, it's not about what you do, it's about what you are and your relationship with God. And again, we're, we're sticking with a heavy Protestant line here. We are born in sin and by nature we are lost. That is our condition, this writer, this anonymous writer claims. Faith and baptism make us pure so that we do not meet with damnation. The redemption is there for us, but we have to embrace it. We have to go for it. And then the chorale, the final chorale, which always brings everything together. The eye sees only water as men pour water. Only faith understands the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And for faith, it is a red stream coloured by the blood of Christ. Communion, water, water changed into wine. You know, this is uh, water changed into blood. Which heals well all the injuries we inherited from Adam. Poor old Adam, here he is again. But, which heals well all of the injuries we inherited from Adam and also those we have brought on ourselves. It's not enough just to blame Adam and Eve. It's, it's us. Okay, here's those last three movements. Quite a short aria from that alto there. Um, I'd hope you, know, you might have noticed the dipping um, any time that they talk about the word Zünden or Sterben, um, sins or death. The instruments dip down, and uh, I, I, it always, always interests me a bit. But it, it ends quite quickly because it's, it's, it's got a warning. <clears throat> we are born in sin by nature. We are lost. Faith and baptism make us pure so that we do not meet with damnation. Stop. That's where you are. So, John the Baptist, go out and repent. Okay. Do the change, do the thing, go to the spiritual Weight Watchers, do it, okay, and, and mean it. Um, baptism, there's a great book by Timothy Radcliffe on baptism. Is it actually just called baptism? I've forgotten. Taking the Plunge. Taking the Plunge, Timothy Radcliffe. Wonderful, wonderful book, which basically says it's all about baptism. That's it, the one thing we all need, the one thing that unites us all together as all denominations, one baptism. So if you want to look into that, um, then I'd suggest that book. And um, if you're listening on a podcast, thank you for tuning in. Do um, follow us on at St Paul's Learning on Twitter. And I shall see you next week for um, a little investigation of a small person called Mary, the Mother of God. Thank you very much.